Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Lipton Green Tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables, and fruit. Just two cups of Lipton Green Tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. Available in new Signature Blend Green Tea and new Lemon Peach and Honey Ginger Green Tea. Try new Lipton Green Tea today. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And a quick announcement before we get going, Rory, about a special event that you and I have got coming up. We are going to be at the Poll Econ UK conference for A-level politics students on March the 11th this year. We'll be talking and taking questions from an audience of about 2,000 A-level students. There will be major politicians and political commentators, including West Streeting, and Jess Phillips, and the popular conservative, or PopCon as he now calls himself, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and more. And you can book now. But please note, this is a strictly educational event. Only teachers can book on behalf of their students. So teachers, get on with it. And students, tell your teachers about it. Tickets are available at www.poll, as in politics, econ, as in economics, uk.org. That's polyconuk.org forward slash trip and i think book pretty quickly hopefully see lots and lots of you there and our first question this week is on something we briefly touched upon in the main podcast that's india gabe sutcliffe what do you think about modi building a hindu temple on the site of a demolished mosque in india well let's let's just sort of quickly give the background on this so there was a very very famous mosque called the babri masjid which was built by the Emperor Babur, who was the first Mughal emperor of India. So it's the late 15th century, late 1400s, early 1500s, he, he took over in India. And it was believed by a particular group of Hindu nationalists to have been built on the site of the birthplace of Rama, the hero of the Ramayana. And in the early 90s, it was torn down. This mosque was torn down by a Hindu nationalist mob. And then a huge amount of money has been plowed in, some of it coming from Narendra Modi's government, into building a vast Hindu temple on the site. And Narendra Modi has spent much of the last 40 days fasting, 
sleeping on the floor of a temple, been involved in religious purification rites, and has presided over an extraordinary star-studded reopening of this temple in Iodia with Bollywood stars and business people there as a very, very aggressive attack, basically, on, on Muslim identity and the Muslim community in India. Mm. Well, that's, I suspect, how a lot of them will will take it. Um, I watched the coverage yesterday. It was enormous, the coverage, as well as the temple. And just to wind back on the, the, the 1992 situation when the mosque was kind of, you know, raised to the ground, that led to riots in which around 2,000 people, even more than 2,000 people, I think, were killed. And then a decade or so later, riots in Gujarat, where the then regional prime minister, Narendra Modi, was felt to be very, very biased towards one side, unfair to the Muslim community. I think there was a point where he couldn't travel um, to many parts of the world because he was essentially seen as, as being quite extreme. He's now heading for another election. India is one in this great election year. India is one of the elections. It'll be in a few months' time. He gets to choose the date. And this is, this is a country that is supposedly secular. State and politics and religion are meant to be separate. And yet that was as powerful a political event as I think I've seen in a very, very long time. Um, he is shaping a new India, and he's, he's making no bones about that. He's shaping a new India up to and including possibly changing the name at some point. And the whole event really was a way of signaling I'm your man. I'm the I'm the I'm, I'm for the Hindus, and that of course is eighty percent of the population. You talk about I mean the Bollywood stars were there. Sachin Tendulkar is one of the greatest cricketers of all time. He was there. They built a new airport to go along with the town. They built a new railway station. It's a sort of he's he's bringing together religion, massive investment in infrastructure, and him as this kind of man of the people, um, which is an act which the Indians seem to like. And and to take it back to the real fundamentals, India under the British had a huge mixed Hindu-Muslim population, along obviously with Parsi, Buddhist, Christians and others, but predominantly Hindu and with a very large Muslim minority. And the partition that split India apart after independence in 1947 was essentially about the creation of a Muslim state in Pakistan, and India resisted that. India, in its constitution and under Nero, remained defiantly secular. Mm. We're very, very proud of the fact that when Pakistan decided to create a state around Muslim identity, India was not doing that. And under Congress and Indira Gandhi, who was the, the daughter of Nehru, they kept this secular vision alive and in fact were frequently very, very firm against Hindu nationalists and others who tried to stir up Hindu-Muslim hatred. But the Babri Masjid and then the riots that followed and then the Gujarat riots made Muslims feel in India really as though they were becoming a marginalized, persecuted minority. The Gujarat riots produced footage of pregnant women being attacked and rape happening, and a lot of images, in fact, which are very, very reminiscent of the images that came out of the October 7th Hamas attack on Gaza, and had the same impact, I think, on the Muslim community or many people in the Muslim community in India that the attacks October 7th had on many Israelis and Jews, which is that it led to a strong sense that Islamophobia in India was now state-backed. And Modi famously, when asked whether he regretted what happened when he was chief minister, all this happening under his nose, said his only regret was he hadn't managed the media better. Mm. 
Um, so it's terrifying. There's a, there's a book by K.S. Comoretti called Malevolent Republic, which really makes the case against Modi's Hindu nationalism very, very strongly. I mean, it's a bit of a polemic. So, but if you want to hear the case, the worst case made against what's happening now in India, Comrade's book is incredibly readable, and he's pretty brutal actually on Congress and on on the Gandhis as well. Yeah, it's um, he, he's a formidable politician. There's no doubt about that. Um, and his, you know, the way he his his demeanour, he he comes across as being so calm and quite gentle character. But he's a very, very, very tough politician. I think you said to you before, I, dodged, I really dodged a bullet not long after he was elected because I was asked if I would go and write his biography. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I do remember you saying this. You were going to be his biographer. Yeah, and wow. I was quite tempted. I, I can't remember what else I was doing at the time, but I was reasonably tempted. I thought, because I'd written about him in the book I wrote, Winners. I think this is what drew their attention to me as a possibility. I'd written at some length about his campaign. You know how I love the ABBA voyage? Yes, the, the avatars. But Modi was ahead of the game. Modi was doing rallies all around the country where he would be live in, a say, Delhi, and then around the country on the what was just the back of a lorry, the, the fake Modi would come out, and he was, so he was gathering huge crowds. He's a great showman. But I think this is, you know, if you're, if you're and 20% of the population, roughly 20% Muslim, that's a lot of people who are currently feeling a bit scared. And there was a guy, I don't know if you ever watched some of the Indian television, but I, I was sort of channel hopping through a couple of them yesterday. And they, you know, they get very, very enervated and very, very excited. And there was one guy who was on the news saying, you know, now we've got to take this to every town and every city and tear down the mosques. And then he was sort of waving a flag and saying, you know, including the Taj Mahal, the Taj Mahal must go. And you're thinking, this is quite scary stuff. In an and it's in an election year. I think there's no doubting the timing of this. And as we discussed in the podcast yesterday, it's easy to be complacent about this stuff. Because the Indian economy is going very well, and business people like Modi, and he's cleared up corruption, and he sorted out the currency. And of course, India is very popular at the moment with the West because it's seen as the counterbalance to China. Yeah. And of course, Modi is very, very popular with the diaspora community. Um, people are reluctant to criticize him. So people will say, oh, yeah, he's talking that stuff. And yes, he was involved in this Hindu extremist militia group in his youth, but really this is just chat. And it's difficult to predict the future. But what we do know from Russia, particularly at the moment, that you can go down a pretty fast slippery slope from starting to get all this ethno-nationalist, or in this case, religious nationalist language going, can lead to some very, very sinister yeah. results pretty, pretty quickly. Mm. Um, and it gets out of control of the leaders. I mean, you get the sense with Putin that it's as you were talking about with that, that book um, by Jade McGlynn, it's not just Putin, it's the whole lot surrounding him. And again, it's true with Modi. I mean, Modi, of course, himself now has his own even more ultra-nationalist Hindu rights saying he's not going far enough. Yeah, yeah. Now, Cameron Stocker, tactical voting. Considering Labour's massive poll lead, do you think tactical voting campaigns such as getvoting.org will still be important in the upcoming general election? In marginal seats, could the UK's broken first past the post electoral system allow the Tories to cling on? Well, on that same sort of theme, Rory, I want to give a shout out to something called South Devon Primary. Oh, yes. All I've done is sort of see it on social media and had a look at a, the odd website and stuff. But basically, they seem to be saying that. So they're in an area, South Devon, that is traditionally, you know, fairly Tory. They say there's a clear majority that want the Tories out. 
And so what they're doing is going through this sort of primary process where they're having hustings with all the different opposition candidates and hoping eventually to end up with one. And this is spreading to a few other seats as well. So I don't know whether that will that will catch on, whether that will work, whether some people will feel, no, I have to vote for the party I want, even if I think they're going to they're going to lose. But I think tactical voting will I think there will be a lot of tactical voting. And and it's and it's now enabled by technology much more, isn't it? That's what this this website getvoting.org does, isn't it? It helps you understand how you should be voting tactically. Yeah, and where. Just on this similar theme, what did you make? We had a couple of questions on this as well, but what did you make of um, Hamza Youssef, who we'll be interviewing quite soon on leading? But what did you make of him coming out of the weekend? And, and the, the message he seemed to be trying to put across was, Keir Starmer is definitely going to be the next prime minister. Therefore, I'd quite like to talk to him before that happens. And we can sort of, you know, work out whether we can work together. I mean, well, is, is that not, I mean, presumably he's, his main objective is to make sure he wins as many seats as possible in the next election. So is it possible that he thinks that if people think that Keir Starmer's a shoo-in in the way that they thought Theresa May was a shoo-in in, in 2017, maybe people will vote SNP because they'll think they don't need the Labour votes in Scotland. Is that his hope? Yeah, but I, I think it probably is. But it, I just found it quite confusing because at, at various points, they've had all these different lines of a, approach as to why you should vote SNP. At one point, it was to say it's because there's going to be a Tory government. The Tories are going to win unless you vote SNP. Then it was going to be there's a hung parliament. Then they run this line that there's no difference between Tory and Labour. Then they ran the line that the election is going to be a referendum on independence again. And so I'm just a bit, I was just a little bit confused. I'm, I'm guessing you're right. Maybe the Tories and the SNP both have a vested interest in people thinking that the election's a foregone conclusion because that is then. In Scotland, yeah. Well, no, but, 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 in, but England as well, you might have this sort of sense that there's, there's no point, we're going to lose, there's no point voting, just, you know, vote for us, but don't bother, we're going to lose anyway. I mean, it's a sort of, I think it used to be called the Queensland strategy, where you basically, <laughs> and, that, and that, the reason for that was because the, the, uh, a party ran that as a strategy saying, look, you know, we're going to lose, there's no point really getting involved. And of course, you know, they, they, to, to quote your predecessor, Willie Whitelaw, in your old seat, they went around the country stirring up apathy and it worked. <laughs> Um, so I think that's what he's up to, but we'll be able, we'll be able to ask him when, um, when we see him. Very good. So, um, question from James Moole, gosh, muscles, Ooh. which three current world leaders would you most want Britain's next prime minister to look to for inspiration? Which three current world leaders? Well, I'm not going with Narendra Modi, notwithstanding your book winners. No. Definitely not. I, I wrote about him as a winning campaigner, not as a winning prime minister. Um, <laughs> oh my God, that's a hard question. I think my friends, I think, I think my friend Eddie Rahm is good, uh, heading up for a fourth term and his country moving in the right direction. Oh, that's quite a thing to look at. The, look at the prime minister of Albania <laughs> as the inspiration. <laughs> I did, I did, I did preface it with my friend. Um, I think the prime minister of Singapore, who's in his last. Yeah, I think he's a very, very impressive guy. But of course, Singaporean politics is very different to ours. No, norm normally you and I'd be talking about Macron, wouldn't we? We'd be talking about Macron. Why are we not talking about Macron at the moment? Yeah, Macron. I think Macron has been good. Um, but, you know, he's, he's also, I think we have to say, he's very, very unpopular in France at the moment. Um, but he, I think Macron, yeah, Macron is a sort of leader who's definitely kind of got a sense of vision and good at building teams and he may break up teams as well, but he builds them again. Incidentally, the New Zealand Prime Minister wants to come on. We, we interviewed the last New Zealand yeah. Prime Minister. We've got to remember to do that. Let's see whether we think he could be a model for anyone. Yeah. I, but, I, you know, it is, it is one of those periods in history where 
Ooh, yeah, there aren't that many, are there? I, I, I asked this question, actually, of um, one of the Congress people that we saw recently. I said, which other world leaders do you admire then? And she said, Millet <laughs> in Argentina. So, oh, Donald Tusk. I think a shout out for Donald Tusk, who's, we've got some questions on Poland, but I think we should revisit Poland in some depth because he's come in and it's proving very, very hard to unpick and undo a lot of the damage that's been done by the, the PIS in recent years. But I would definitely say Donald Tusk. Because there are still parts of the Law and Justice Party, including the president sitting there with their, their hands on important bits of power, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Another one I, th- I would um, point to, I think has shown incredible courage, is the president of Moldova, Maya Sandu. I think she's you know very small country, very, very, very dangerously placed right now with Russia breathing down their necks. But, and I think she's a very, very impressive woman. So there's somebody else maybe we should look to. Very good. Uh, why isn't rejoining the EU front and centre of Labour's campaign? What can say? Well, given Alistair's schadenfreude on Brexit, why does he think Labour will not put rejoining the EU in their manifesto for the next election? Because they don't want to revisit the whole Brexit debate at this time when they're trying to win the election on, on other issues. I might not welcome that or even think that it's the right thing to do, but um, I think that's the answer to the question. Lewis Nader, how are the Lib Dems going to do in the election? They never seem to be discussed. Well, they are in a pretty sad situation. I mean, the Conservatives are a terrible situation. The latest polls put Labour, you know, pushing towards 50%, the Tories in the low 20s. But at the moment, the Lib Dems are neck and neck with the ex sort of Brexit UKIP party. Mm. And I don't think have been, I, 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 you know, we've been discussing um, Ed Davey. He's not cutting through. I know you liked him when we interviewed him on the on leading. And I know we've got a lot of Lib Dem listeners, but boy, oh boy, I think would people struggle to work out what on earth his platform is. He's been the leader of that party for a surprisingly long time, and I am not seeing energy there. And the obvious thing they should be doing, relating to your last question, is coming out for customs union or coming out for the single market, putting the EU at the center of the agenda. That at least would make them distinctive. Can you yeah. think of anything they're saying that Labour's not saying or the Tories aren't saying? What he would say, I imagine, is that they have a very, very targeted strategy aimed at a number of constituencies that they uh, are going for, most of which are currently held by the Tories. But I agree that they're not really cutting through. In fact, you know, I think that um, the way that he got placed at the centre of the post office scandal, for a lot of people, would have been their kind of first sense of him as a sort of national figure politician. And it is always harder for the third party, but it's even harder for him at the moment because he doesn't get the automatic platform in Parliament because he's not the third party anymore. Yeah. You remember, I I thought he'd been in that position for a long time. And when I asked him on leading, go on, tell us what you're about. I thought he was surprisingly slow to come up with a a line. Mm, And I said, if you remember, I said, I bet they'll go away from that now and they'll, they'll really work it out and we'll start to see it. But I agree with you, we haven't really... We haven't really seen it. By the way, I should, um, as you know, Rory, if we get our facts wrong, we always apologise, unlike most of our newspapers. I said last week in the Q&A that the Ed Davey interview, where he was asked the same question 10 times, was with Dan Hewitt. It was with Paul Brand. Oh, Paul must have been pretty cross about that. I don't think he was very cross, but it was actually some of his colleagues told me I'd I'd messed it up. So I'd sent him a message to apologise. He said he wasn't that bothered. He said he loves the podcast, so it's all fine. Um, So question from Catherine. Which plays, which films have we been seeing and enjoying recently? We've been seeing any films, TV recently? Mm. We went to see Priscilla the other night. 
Very good. And that's not Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, I understand. It's your friend Elvis again. It's Priscilla, wife of Elvis. As a sort of massive Elvis fan, which I am, it's slightly troubling. Oh, he wasn't very nice to her, is the revelation, is it? At times he wasn't nice, but he was very, very nice to her when, when they first met. But at the time she was only 14. Oh. Um, and then he got a sort of flown out to his to Graceland. And, but right. it's a very kind of nice portrait of her. It's the relationship from her perspective. We also watched Killers of the Flower Moon. Now, we cheated a bit because we didn't watch it in the cinema because I couldn't quite face three and a half hours sitting near people who are eating popcorn and doing other things that should be banned in cinemas. So we watched, <laughs> so we watched it in two, in two goes on television. And my God. You liked it? You'd recommend it? I, yeah. I, I mean, do you know what? Because Leonardo DiCaprio is sort of seen as this kind of you know, a bit of a sex symbol and all that stuff. He's an incredible actor. Right. Yeah, I think as a, as a, as a slice of a very interesting and much misunderstood period of American history, I thought it was pretty impressive. Good. So my, my thing is I've just been to see Cabaret at the Kit Kat Club, which is Playhouse Theatre next to Embankment in London. Just incredible. And I hugely recommend it to you. So, I mean, I think it, it totally reverses the old complaint about popcorn, which is that it really embraces the idea that the whole audience is turned into a cabaret audience with tables and drinks on them and nibbles on them. And Rebecca Lucy Taylor, who plays Sally Bowles, is just extraordinary. And the singing, I mean, I know you love music, the singing is phenomenal. But they set the mood right from the moment you enter. Um, it's worth turning up, if you go to see it, worth turning up 15 minutes, half an hour in advance to just catch the ambiance because they've created the sense of a uh, 1930s German bar from the beginning. And of course, um, as people know the story, it's it's both incredible music, but also a very, very interesting lesson about the way in which you can feel like a frog in boiling water and convince yourself nothing's going to go yeah. wrong. The, the, the central character who, or one of the central characters who's Jewish says, when the American says, look, shouldn't you be getting out of Germany? He says, no, no, no. Um, I understand the Germans. I am German. Don't worry about it. There's, mm. there's nothing to worry about here. Mm. Very good. Very good. Well, that was what we call a massive plug. Well done. Massive plug, massive plug. Yeah. yeah. Now, here's one for, you, for, yeah. well, for both of us, really. Sam Dyson. How should Keir Starmer handle a potential Trump presidency? Does he take the May Johnson approach, knowing it will hurt him domestically? Or does he give Donald the cold shoulder, which could damage the special relationship, but would be very popular here in the UK? Oh, what should he do? Should he be polite to him or should he make it clear that he despises him? I think the former. I think it has to be the former. I mean, it's not impossible that these elections are going to happen at the same time. Look, the temptation, this is the whole Love Actually thing when that scene in the Love Actually when Hugh Grant as Prime Minister sort of does the amazing, stands up to the Americans. And of course, it's great cinema, but I think it would be very, very, very dangerous politics. But it is tricky. I think, it, I think basically all, both the main parties in a sense have to have to stay out of the politics. Oh God, it's so tricky. So in, in my, my sort of catastrophic attempt to be leader of the Conservative Party in that debate against Boris Johnson, I was asked what, what I thought about the latest offensive comment by Donald Trump. And I sort of said, well, I think, you know, British prime ministers have to be quite careful mm. getting involved in slagging off other world leaders. And we can do things in private, not public. And there were headlines afterwards saying, what is the point of Rory Stewart if he isn't even prepared to come out and attack <laughs> Donald Trump? So I feel for Keir Starmer here. And you know, one of the, to add to my list of fury at Boris Johnson, he's just written a Daily Mail article suggesting that 
whose least headlines seem to suggest that Trump wouldn't be too bad a thing. And Jacob Rees-Mogg's now come out saying nice things yeah. about Trump. And Andrew, Andrea Jenkins said we need to get Boris and Trump back. I, that's why the other reason, Rory, why I feel that Johnson's commitment to Ukraine was all about him and not about Ukraine. Anybody who really cares about the future of Ukraine does not want Donald Trump back in the White House. Yeah. So Boris Johnson can go stuff himself with that one. I think, look, I think Keir Starmer will just play it very, very down the line and very, very proper. I actually thought his, I, I, before we started recording, I, I, I caught his response to, to Rishi Sunak. And I, I think he actually is emerging with a bit of a foreign policy defense position which I, I would like to see more of. I'd like to see more of foreign, because I think the, the connecting of foreign policy to domestic policy, I mean, if you think about what we've talked about on the main podcast and on the Q&A this week, so much of, of what the British people are talking about actually relates to things that are happening outside this country. Yeah. Well, I mean, Brendan May's got a question on this, which I guess applies to Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. Why should Western governments continue to prop up Netanyahu, when he's confirmed on record that he will reject the only possible path to peace in his region, namely an independent and sovereign Palestinian state and one that doesn't require forced migration of millions. It's a very good, very good question. And I am astonished that Keir Starmer hasn't come out yet unambiguously and completely for a ceasefire. I mean, I, I think the, the time for holding off on that has passed so long ago now. Well, he's, I think he has. I mean, he did in that comments in the comments that I mentioned, he I think he uses the same language as David Cameron does, the sustainable ceasefire. Yeah, but the sustainable ceasefire, the sustainable bit, when you look into the small print, basically means, you know, it's sustainable when Hamas has disappeared and the hostages yeah. have all been returned and this and the other. So essentially it's it's language that works for the Israeli government. It's not really stopping the bombing of Gaza. I certainly think that that Netanyahu is this is something we suggested might happen, but I think it's happened. To, to a degree that is worse than either of us expected. Netanyahu is basically pocketing the support that he gets wherever it comes from. But then in terms of his own approach to this war, he's not budging an inch, I don't think, from the strategy he fixed upon right at the start. That I mentioned in the main podcast, this dispute that's going on between him and Benny Gantz and, other, and, and some of the observers at the, at the war cabinet. And um, the guy who, who gave this rather tricky interview for Netanyahu, Eisenkot, he was asked whether he thought that Netanyahu might just be trying to make this war sort of last as long as he can to stay in power. And, you know, you'd have thought, you'd have thought a member of his close, the guy who tends all these war cabinet meetings, he thought of his answer would have been, no, of course not. He's just representing the national interest and pursuing the strategy that we've got. Instead of which he just said, I hope not. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess, I mean, I guess Heisenkot's not, not on his side, is he? Uh, let's take a break. Lipton Green Tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables, and fruit. Just two cups of Lipton Green Tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. Available in new Signature Blend Green Tea and new Lemon Peach and Honey Ginger Green Tea. Try new Lipton Green Tea today. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. 
Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Aman Perik, is populism condescending? Is the word populism condescending to the average voter? I have sometimes felt this. I remember going to a big meeting with one of these grisly international conferences, not Davos this time, back in 2016, and seeing all the great luminaries of Europe, you know, uh, Hermann von Rompuy, Mario Monti, Jean-Claude Trichet, all lamenting populism and thinking really, wait a sec, what's the difference between populism and what voters in a democracy really want? And the best answer I've come up with is that populism isn't really a way of describing doing things that voters want. It's a way of describing the leaders, not the voters. It's a way of describing an unbelievable act of cynicism and dishonesty, which is essentially involved in pitting one group against another and offering very simplistic solutions to complex problems. Exactly. That's that's I've always thought populism is where he's got a point is that once you're having to explain at that kind of length what we define populism as, then you've sort of lost it a little bit. And I think that because populism starts with the first five letters that you have for popular, when populism first started to be discussed kind of universally as, a, as part of our politics, it really won the debate in terms of, well, we're doing what the people want and what's wrong with what the people want. And that's what allowed the populace then to say, this is about us, the people, against the elite. Listen, it's something that I don't think 
I don't think we, the whatever you want to call us, the sort of, you know, anti-populists, I don't think we've ever really found the right language to deal with this. Now, here's one, Rory. Keith Thomas, who I'm guessing for the surname might be Welsh. Carwin Jones, ex-First Minister of Wales, not unreasonably has asked the question as to why, if net zero is a major contributing factor to the decision of Tata Steel to close Port Talbot, the same is not happening at their plant in the Netherlands or elsewhere in Europe. What are your thoughts? I, I should commend on this a short film. I think that may be where Keith's question come from, because Carwin Jones was interviewed for this short film by Byline Times, which was analysing the media coverage, BBC, Sky, ITV, GB News, the papers, of the closure of um, the, the steel plant. And the fact that nobody was really trying to analyse why this was being shut and the ease with which the populist right managed to make it an issue about net zero. What Carolyn Jones said was actually the real problem here and the reason why it wasn't being shut down in Holland is Brexit. And that was the gigantic elephant in the room on the steel industry. It's so sad, this though, isn't it? Because there's a big story here, because I remember this when Sajid Javid was on the hook for this years ago, trying to bring in more emergency support measures and support to try to deal with the British steel industry. I mean, it keeps coming back again and again, isn't it? I mean, and presumably this was something you saw in your time in office, that the whole industrial base of Britain struggles and the government comes in with rescue packages and industrial strategies. But it, it's never fully working. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the DL aluminium plant in Glasgow or whether you're talking about Tata Steel or a lot of the Northeast. We're just losing stuff again and again and again. And it just feels as though it's very difficult to keep these kind of industries going in Britain. Mm. I, I do think it was incredible. There were lots and lots and lots of words devoted to this. It was on the news all day. It was all across the newspapers. But the the success that the sort of pro-Brexit people have had in keeping Brexit out of the debate on massive issues like this. And you had Farage, they're the guy who was on record as saying, if we stay in the European Union, Britain's steel industry will die. Johnson said the same. And Farage, you know, straight onto GB News saying, this is all about net zero, these crazy plans on net zero. There were interviews with the steel workers who were saying, you know, we understand we have to transition, but it's how we do the transition. But in the meantime, I, I, we should put in the in the newsletter the interview, the, the, the report on Byline Times, because it really did. It gave you a completely different perspective, but it was one that I think is closer to the truth than a lot of the reports that we saw. Yeah. I mean, one of the things the British right, the populist right, are not doing, which would be the natural move in the US, is protectionism. I mean, the, the real way that you keep your steel industry alive is you do what Trump did, which is you put massive tariffs on import of other people's steel. Mm. What's interesting about the British right is it remains much more free trade than almost any other populist right-wing movement anywhere in the world. That's true. And that makes it very, very difficult, oddly, to, to, to support an industrial base, hence the sort of Singapore attempts. Final question from me, which is a bit self-serving because it's directed against me. Matt Lucas, in previous discussions around people with backgrounds and highly local politics being thrust into foreign policy, Rory's mentioned the difference between Sunni and Shia Islam being one of the common knowledge gaps as someone with minimal knowledge. Broadly looks like the global sides of the Muslim are splitting along this line with broadly Shia Iran on one side and broadly Sunni Saudi Arabia on the other. Western biases usually make me think of Catholics and Protestants through history. No idea how bad of that comparison truly is. But it's not bad. It's not it's bad. Not, not bad is the answer. And actually, uh, for more details, and it, Barnaby Rogerson's written a book that's just come out called House Divided goes right back to the very, very early days of Islam and a split in leadership between the 
son-in-law and cousin of the Prophet Muhammad and his children who were killed in the Battle of Karbala. Ali, Ali bin Abu Talib. Very good. And, and Imam Hussein, his son. And on the other side, Yazid and the Sunni line that took over. That was Abu, Abu Bakr. Very good. I've been looking it up too, Rory. Very good. No, I, I haven't had to look it up for once in my life. <laughs> Not something I have to look up. Um, but it's, and of course, as you've pointed out, when you say broadly speaking in the question, I mean, it's, it's, it is more complicated because there's a huge Shia population in Saudi Arabia. There's a very significant Sunni population in mm. Iran. And of course, in Afghanistan, the center of the country is dominated by Shia who, in the first time the Taliban were in the 90s, faced almost kind of genocidal attacks from the Sunni Taliban against the Shia Hazara. Yeah, I, I think the the comparison with Catholic Protestant is, shouldn't be overdone. But I think where there's where you can see is they essentially on the sort of you know the big picture of who their God is and believing in that God, they they believe the same things. There are five pillars of Islam, and both Sunni and Shia follow them. And essentially, it was a, it was a debate about who should follow Muhammad when he died in six hundred and thirty something. And the Sunnis believe that the successor should come from people, as it were, who were capable of doing the job. And that's why Abu Bakr, who was a friend and a close advisor, he, he became the first caliph. And then the Shias, they believe that it should stay in the family uh, of those who have been appointed. And at the time, they wanted, the, as you say, yeah. the cousin and the son-in-law. And they've developed very different sorts of theology. So obviously, in, in Iran, as people will know listening to the show, the Ayatollahs, and particularly the uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, who's the supreme leader, have a very particular position of authority. And maybe in that way, it might remind people a bit of the Catholic Church with more authorities for popes and, and bishops. He is, as it were, he is, in a sense, a greater authority than the state because he is seen as infallible in the same way as the pope is infallible. Well, yes, although there's also a great tradition of debate in Shiritism. I mean, they sit there and calm endlessly debating everything. Um, there's mm. a lovely book, for, like, if people want to go a bit deeper, called The Mantle of the Prophet by Roy Motahade, which is an amazing account of, uh, I guess, political history and Islam in, in Shia Iran. But it's, it's a really, really great question. And, and it, it's, it was critical to Iraq because in Iraq, Saddam Hussein, who was Sunni, essentially oppressed the Shia who were the majority. The Shia have now come back in. And that's one of the reasons why we now have a much more Iranian-friendly Iraq. Yeah. But anyway, read Barnaby Rogerson's book. Um, and anybody wants to learn even more, he's actually interviewed on our sister podcast, Empire, where you can hear even more about the difference between Sunni and Shia and what it meant for Iran in particular. If I can add a word about Empire, if I hear Fiona Miller, my partner, say one more time, God, I love Willie Dillrymple on the Middle East. <laughs> 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 I think she's committing pedultery. Pedultery, that's what it is. That's it. My final question, Rory. Yep. I think because I think we've been we've been agreeing far too much. Haley Savage, what does this government have to do that will stop Rory Stewart becoming dewy-eyed when asked who he would vote for in the election? I was shocked that last week he struggled to get past not voting Conservative. Surely he has to want them out if only to save them from themselves. Thank you. There we are. What a great question. What a great question. I, I'm, also, I'm sort of envious. Well, I'm always envious of people like Seb Coe who come on the show and then slag off the Conservative Party and then say they're going to vote Conservative and they're loyal Tories all the way. And <laughs> yeah, he's all right. He can't vote because he's the Lords. 
Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a recovering conservative, and I'm I'm still struggling to navigate my way through all of this stuff. Yeah, I don't think you beca- you're not dewy eyed about the Tories, though, are you? I think that's a bit no. Harsh. I think that's a bit unfair. I don't think I don't think I don't think my colleagues would describe me as being dewy eyed. No, the no. What 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 do you think you're going to vote though? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm staying out of that at the moment. I'm, I'm well, you can't s- stay out of you're you're a political figure. Secrecy of the ballot. This major platform. Oh my. god. God. <laughs> oh my well on the on that note of this great open-minded political figure who wants to change the way we do politics. And just just avoiding the question and refusing to, to give you yeah. the headline you want of me endorsing Keir Starmer. I think I'm gonna vote Labour. Uh, you might might just might I just you so. might might still be supporting Burnley next year. You never know. I'll definitely be doing that. I'll definitely be doing that. (laughs) Very good. All right, Rory. Lovely to talk as ever. All the best. Thank you very much. Bye.